I don't know how much uh, time you've ever thought about, spent thinking about denominations. By that I mean church labels that we refer to as certain groups. You've probably not spent much time of your life wondering about the different denominations, and I certainly understand that you haven't. But just because of the question about our denomination, I thought I'd take one moment to explain, even to go back to literal meaning, the root of D, day, nominate, uh, has to do with giving something its complete name. And so, literally, the word denomination, whether you're talking about a denomination of, of bills that are all the same, uh, if we speak of um, bills of the same denomination, or anything, whether it's church groups or whatever it is, it has to do with their identification. It's, a, it's to do with their name. So, denomination simply means a group that is autonomous in its own setting, it's, it's a, a self-standing group, and it goes by the same name. So its people have similar, uh, have, its people are, use this name as an identifying feature. Um, that's all it means. Denomination is not a particularly religious term, it certainly is not a spiritual term, it just means a, a gr- autonomous group and this is, its, it, it, this is its banner. So in our case, our denomination is Church of the United Brethren in Christ. And uh, it would be a bit similar to brands. We're very familiar with brands and how the, there's a, a, a huge effort in the world of marketing to promote a brand, to uh, identify a brand, to create a brand. And they'll use many different techniques to, dis- ex- to establish something that identifies a unique identifying characteristic. And so that's the idea of a brand. Uh, I don't have a problem with calling United Brethren a brand. It's not out there in the marketplace like some brands of items for sale. But it is our identifying feature, our name, and a brand typically means that there's something unique here, either in the history, either in the story, or in the product. Of course, for us as a church, the product um, has to do with theology um, or uh, methodology. How we've chosen to do something may be a little bit different than how the Lutheran do their church. Or what we believe may be a little distinct from the Baptist. And so there is some sort of a distinctiveness either in our story or in our, in our story or in our methods. And so that kind of creates a little unique spot for us. And that was, the, that was the story from the origin of the church on. Here's a brand you recognize. Um, <clears throat> I don't know a lot about the history of Oscar Mayer, but I remember something that I did learn once seeing a documentary of some sort on television, and that was in the early days of, of the baloney hot dog era, uh, in the early days of, of uh, that industry out in, I think, Chicago area where Oscar Mayer, a German immigrant, had landed, uh, 
he was a bit dismayed because he used what he felt was the finest quality cuts of meat in his blownies, his sausages, his hot dogs, so forth. And what he found out was he wasn't doing real great sales-wise because when the, 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 the meat would go out to the butcher shops across the country, the butcher shops didn't care where it came from. This is, you can look this up. They just throw them all together in a pile. So in a butcher shop, if, if you ask for hot dogs, there might be a tub filled with hot dogs. And some of them may be from this guy and some of them may be from that guy. And the customers didn't even know where these hot dogs came from. They were just all mixed together. And this, this upset Oscar because he felt like his were the better quality than many other people's. But the customer had no way of even asking for his. So he said, we've got to distinguish our hot dog so that customers, once they like it, can ask for it again, and he came up with the idea, believe it or not, tied a yellow ribbon around every individual hot dog uh, so that in the, in the butcher shop, when they came and looked in the window or in the tub, they could tell which hot dogs belonged to Oscar Mayer. They had a ribbon around them, and uh, that was the beginning of what, you know, of course, became a, a very successful promotion of his brand and a very big promotion of his of his career. Uh, I don't know whether you like Oscar Mayer or not, but you know about them because they have a distinct history. Oscar, by the way, also, this is all, no extra charge for this. He, <laughs> he was the one who invented the packaging that you see right now today in stores where the hot dogs are almost shrink-wrapped in this little tube. They look like bullets sitting there ready to begin going to machine gun. That is precisely where it came from. Um, I believe it was after World War I. They were having trouble with, with different facets of handling them and marketing. And Oscar actually uh, went to a military base and got a, an old machine gun, uh, the, the, the part that, that put the, the bullets in to feed into the machine guns, he needed something organized, and he got this idea, and he took this apart and reverse-engineered it and created a machine that could pack hot dogs in just like the bullets were packed in, ready to go down into the gun to be fired, and that's stuck, and that's still how they are today. Okay, so we have a brand, a bit of a, of a, of a sense of identity of our own United Brethren Church. Uh, let me back up for a second. Just uh, mentioning for a moment the fact that among Christian in the Christian community, there are many, many different brands. And I have there, I think in your sermon notes, the big, huge divisions, which would be three, the Eastern or the Orthodox Church, and this covers most of Eastern Europe, uh, sometimes called the Russian Orthodox Church. It is a, a large swath of the Christian community. And in the original, uh, in, in after the original schism between the East and the West, clear back almost about 1,000 A.D., um, it was often referred to as the East and the West, but eventually became called the Orthodox and the Catholic or the Roman Church, dominated by the politics of Rome. The other, uh, the other church, the Eastern Church, was dominated by the politics of Constantinople and what became Turkey. And, uh, and, and so forth. So this were the, these were the two divisions with, within church. It was politics, but it was also theology. There were differences. And then, of course, 
in the 16th century, a guy named Martin Luther and others showed up in Europe, and they were within the Catholic fold, but actually their reformation or protest, from which they were called Protestants, uh, scattered to both sides of the, all around the globe. And so the Protestant church today is a third division of what I would call the Christian community. You have the Roman Catholic, you have the Eastern Orthodox, and you have the Protestant. Now, the Protestant, of course, then has within it many, many, many brands, many, many hundreds of groups like ours, the United Brethren Church. So we're not Catholic, we're not Orthodox, we're Protestant. But um, within the Catholic or within the Protestant Church, there are many brands. I have a book here, it's just called Denominations and Ministries, and I'm just opening it to the uh, index at the front, and here's one label, Brethren. So let me just read you some names. Brethren Church Ashland, Brethren Church uh, General Conference, wherever, whatever, Weinbrenner, okay. Um, Brethren in Christ, Christian Brethren, Church of the United Brethren in Christ, that's us, Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, Old German Baptist Brethren Church, and so forth. There's... There's a whole list of denominations just using the, the word brethren in their name. So there's hundreds of these groups, and this is our unique story and our unique history a little bit. Um, as I already mentioned, the thing started for us early in the history of this country, still in the 1600s, when there was a, a, a meeting near Lancaster it happened to be uh, at, as part of a religious service or of a, of, a, of a church service. And the two men who met that day and became very good friends and worked together the rest of their lives was uh, Philip William Otterbein, who was a big guy. He was over six foot tall and stocky and heavy. And he was a German immigrant. And also the, the meeting that he met, the man he met that day was named Martin Beam, B-O-E-H-M, and he was a little tiny guy, you know, small or you know, kind of a small-featured guy. He was a Mennonite by his background. Um, I mean, he grew up here in America, but he was Mennonite. His family had come, I think, from Switzerland. And he was uh, very uneducated. Otterbein had studied in the universities in, 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 G in Germany, and he was very educated. And these two men were just quite a bit unlike Otterbein got married briefly. I think he was married about five years, and his wife died. Later in his life, he got married, and she died, and he never had any children, never had any family. Uh, all his family was in Germany. He never owned a house. He just lived in a church parsonage or something like that, but he always dressed very formally, and he was kind of, you know, he'd wear a robe when he spoke, and he was kind of a high church dude, and then Martin Beam was just the opposite. He, he, was, he was just very common, and he didn't dress up, and he had a large family and a prosperous farm. And I mean, we were just two unlikely men to really form any kind of a connection. And I want to read uh, just from an article that describes the, the historic meeting. Some of us, some of you have been to Lancaster and visited the barn where this meeting was held in the farm. It's still there. It's a working farm in Lancaster today. Um, this was in 1767. Let me just read a couple paragraphs. Great meetings were basically independent religious gatherings, not connected with any particular group. They were typically held at farms. Words would go out about an upcoming meeting. 
kind of like a revival service for us in our day and time. People would pack enough clothes and food to last a few days and bunk in homes and barns and perhaps crude shelters just built for the event. And various preachers would show up, gather up a crowd and let loose to everyone in within hearing range. They didn't, they didn't have these microphone things like we have today. <clears throat> Several might preach at the same time on different parts of the farm. You ever been out to marry an auction where there's about five auctioneers going, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and you just kind of had to pick and choose. That's how it is. That's how, that's how it was when they would have these great meetings. Because there may be hundreds of people there, and it could, they didn't have microphone systems. And they weren't all in the same room. So it was that kind of a thing. Uh, people, uh, people from rural areas who maybe didn't have regular access to a minister were able to sit under solid preaching. And the fellowship was good. Probably the, the eating, too. And whole communities would find the Holy Spirit coming upon them in power and changing their lives. Isaac Long, with his brothers John and Benjamin, were among converts of Martin Beams among the Mennonites. Isaac sometimes accompanied Beam to these great meetings. In 1767, Isaac offered to host a great meeting at the barn that his family had built 13 years earlier, about six miles north of Lancaster. People came from all around, Lutherans, German Reform, Mennonites, Dunkers, Amish, and others. Most of the attendees were German-speaking folks, but a few English came. This is one of the unique aspects of our brand. We started among the German-speaking immigrants in Pennsylvania, moved out in other areas, but um, ours initially was a German-speaking church, and it was ministry to German-speaking immigrants. Uh, William Otterbein traveled 30 miles from York while a Virginia minister preached to an overflow crowd in the orchard. Otterbein went into the barn where he heard Martin Beam preach about his conversion. Martin Beam uh, grew up in the church, but he really didn't, he didn't, it, it didn't catch in his heart. And he was, he, he was nominated to preach as the Mennonite people did. They would draw lots and, and it was his turn to preach. And and he became very agitated spiritually because he realized that he didn't have anything really to preach about. He was just a Mennonite by tradition. He really had nothing in his heart and soul. He didn't know what he believed. He, and he felt he was lost. And uh, he had a long wrestling match, spiritual wrestling match with the Lord as he was working his crops in his field one day. And he, and he said that he, he told this story on the day that Otterbein met him. Uh, as he preached this sermon there in the barn, and he told how that he, he cried out at one point, I'm lost, I'm lost. This is while he's in the field with the horses and the plower. And he said that it was as if a great voice shouted back to him and said, but I have come to seek and save that which was lost. And that did it for him. And he realized that this was a real transaction to be to be turned in your own heart that Christ wanted to save him. And so he got down there and prayed and received, invited Christ to be saved. So he's telling this story about his own life. And Otterbein, this man who had gone through some very similar things in his own ministry, started out pastoring but just realized that he was just kind of doing what he had been trained to do, but his heart wasn't in it. It wasn't real. He didn't really understand some of the realities that he was preaching and had to have his own sort of a crisis and a conversion. 
And, and he realized that this little man had experienced the same kind of a, of a, of a turnaround in his life. And that, he, that it was obvious that this was real to him. And so it says here, Otterbein couldn't contain himself. When Beam finished speaking, he rushed to the front, embraced Beam, and shouted, We're sin bruder. We are brother. A lifelong friendship was forged that day. Otterbein and Beam began working together. They became widely known. Their charisma, their example, their leadership drew many people to their loose moment, to loose movement. A common belief that united these people, that when you gave your life to Christ, he radically transformed you to a new person. Many men, upon being converted, left everything and became ministers, telling others how Christ could transform their lives too. And they often traveled around on horseback, overseeing maybe a couple dozen widely scattered groups of believers. Otterbein and Bame were the glue holding them together. Mennonites only baptized adults, primarily by pouring. The German reform practiced infant baptism and emphasized sprinkling. In Virginia, they, prefer, they preferred immersion. So right away... They had this big difference in theology and practice, but they refused to let such things divide them. They had bigger concerns. People were going to hell, and they wanted to get them pointed in the other direction. So that was the start, the beginning. Um, theology, the beliefs of this particular brand or this particular group, we, can't, we don't begin to have time to get in all the different areas. I just want to mention only two the first is that our beliefs or our doctrine or our theology is guided by or given authority from the Bible. Uh, some groups, I believe all groups within the Christian community honor the Bible, but some groups honor tradition as well. And they say, well, maybe it doesn't say this in the Bible, but this is what people have believed for hundreds of years. And so we're going to include this and we're going to we're going to give this authority our History and our brand has always said, you know, you can honor tradition, you can be thankful for tradition, but tradition doesn't have any authority, only what the scripture says. That's been our brand from the start. Second, one that kind of differentiates us from what's often called the Reformed Church, and this would be denominations like perhaps the Baptist, Presbyterian, that, are, that have a Calvinist leaning, Calvin being a, one of the reformers in Switzerland, Calvin lived in Geneva, uh, he focused on the strong, overwhelming sovereignty of God. And if God was going to take you to heaven, there was nothing you could do about it. You better just get in line and shut up and sit down because you're on the train. And the human response had very little to do with it. Our take, the take that was countered against Calvin by a guy named Jacob Arminius, and so we call it Arminianism, is that while we believe in the sovereignty of God, of course, who could not believe in the sovereignty of God? Every Christian has to believe in the sovereignty of God. At the same time, we believe there's a whole lot of verses in the Bible that say, whoa, there's a lot of it up to us. And we have to respond to this sovereignty. He gives us a free will, and we take that very seriously. So we think that the call of God, while it's powerful and it's convicting, it's not irresistible. A person can harden their heart and say no to God. Even if they had done, even if previously in their life they might have yielded to the Lord, they can, they can always in freedom, they can turn away from that if they so choose. And, that, and therefore, it's incumbent on us always to take a hold of our will and surrender it unto the Lord. And that 
the, the initiation of a relationship with God isn't being, by being baptized as an infant. It's when I, the moment where I surrender my life to Christ. That's when I become a Christian and, and follow Christ. So that's the focus. Those are two of the bigger issues. Um, this is, this is uh, just something that we learn as we go along. Even though Otterbein himself uh, was from a tradition of much more stiff or what's called high church where things are just more formal and the preacher might wear a robe. And, and I mean, uh, we didn't ever go down that path. Uh, uh, the, the United Brethren brand was always a brand of the, way, of the pioneers going west. And, you know, life wasn't real fancy for them. So we have mostly had what, what I'm calling here informal worship. And uh, hang on here, something. Uh, I, I will mention just two other things. We've, we have various methodologies from our, in our church of how things are done. Like you, like you don't have to be baptized any one certain way. There are, there's a lot of freedom given among non-essential things. The other thing I want to mention is, this is our tradition, and every group has its own tradition. Our churches are fairly autonomous. This has become more so as time's moved along. It used to be in the early days that because of the circuit riding situation and the, um, the transition in communities that the church owned the properties of the buildings. As, as I'm talking about through the 1800s, the early 1900s, as the church grew, um, the church, the properties or buildings was actually owned by the, United, by the denomination and, and the group that built it and paid for it kind of just used it. That has changed a number of years ago. That has changed um, the, the encouragement is for churches to be autonomous. And so therefore, now churches, any church, including our church, actually has to fill out a covenant, take a covenant every year or two or three, I forget. And we make a commitment to obey certain, uh, to follow certain uh, uh, doctrines and efforts as a church. And we are in covenant with the United Brethren denomination. So it's, it's a little more uh, oriented towards each local church being in charge of itself than it used to be. Okay, uh, the only two things currently that, I've, that I can think of that you cannot do or have in order and be a member of the church, you can't have slaves. That, that rule was set back in 1820, long before the Civil War, that we as a church took a stand about what we believed and felt about slavery. Um, um, alcohol has come and gone at different times and so forth. But the other one that has remained as a prohibition in our group, and this is a peculiar thing of our brand, not all churches have this same rule, but in, in the United Brethren Church, if you are part of a secret society, you cannot be a member of the church. You're welcome to attend and so forth, but you just cannot be a member. Okay. Um, I want to just mention, go back to the name, this is the name of our church, Church United Brother in Christ. And from each of those three things, I want to just take one aspect. Uh, and I'm going to go backwards and I'll start with Christ. This is part of the distinctive heritage and history purpose of our church. In Christ, I would use the term gospel. This is a reminder to us that we have a message and that the message is come to Christ. The message is not about a cultural phenomenon. It's not about a social gathering. 
We are united brethren in Christ. We have many differences, but Christ brings us together because every one of us here understand that we can only go to heaven through Christ. So this is, this is something that draws us together. The um, united brethren part, I'm going to just use the word unity. I mean, the word united is in there. We are brothers and sisters, and we have a lot of distinctions, and we have a lot of differences, but we, we set those things aside, but we put them on the shelf and say to each other, you know, I may say, Brandon, I don't look like you. Um, I, I don't act like you. Maybe I don't even like you, but you're my brother. And so we're going to try to work together and be united. And then this third, uh, I'm backing all the way up to church. You know, Jesus said, I will build a church. And nothing's going to stop it. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail. And it's going to go out into the world. And he used, Jesus used, the two, two of these uh, word pictures here that I put down here. He said it's going to be like light going out in darkness. It's going to be like salt sending its, um, doing its work among society. So I just want to mention these three words that actually I, I wanted to connect it with the thought of our church name or brand, United Brethren in Christ. The church of the United Brethren in Christ, to me, signifies those uh, three things. And since G and U and M spells gum, I just always wanted to do this. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Hold your hands up. You know, in missions conferences... These missionaries come, and they always throw out something. And I never get to do this. I always wanted to do this. So I just always say, I'm just, I'm just reminding us that we have unity, and we have a mission, and we have the gospel, and we're to take it to people. And I never got to do this before. And I always wanted to do this. So I'm just feeling a little bit nuts right now. It's all right. This is... This is part of who we are. Better hold your head up and hold your hands up because it's coming your way. I'm almost out, but here's a little... Oh, the balcony. Oh, I'm sorry. Here's a couple. Up they come. There's a couple more. There's one for you, Lucy. Okay, that's all. I'm sorry. Um, I just always wanted to do that. I got it out of my system now. I'm all right. Seem like every time we have missions conference, this is what we hear. So, in our history, one of the events, of course, that these guys talked about up here was uh, when this guy, Christian newcomer, who moved over here to Beaver Creek. I didn't say you could be, be blowing bubbles here now. Um, he came just south of Greencastle, and then he came back, and then some other uh, people of, who were fellowshipping with him. And he says in his journal, and the Journal of Christian Newcomer, by the way, is in the Library of Congress. Uh, it's become a very histor per important historical uh, beacon because historians sometimes refer to Christian Newcomer's journal to establish that he, he was very... Per he was very uh, accurate and prolific about journaling all the events that he, that he went through. Um, and he says that when he preached in the vicinity of Greencastle in 1797, that he preached from 2 Corinthians 5. And I, 
I just think, you know, as a turn from the church of our denominational brand to this church, I, I think, can you imagine, or just ask you to try to imagine yourself on that day, a house with 15, 20 people had gathered together, and this preacher on horseback, actually all of them on horseback, because uh, that's how they traveled in those days. Now, you think about this. Uh, this was before... Um, this was before Greencastle was incorporated as a town, 1797. I think Greencastle was incorporated in the early 1800s. This was before Abraham Lincoln was born. This was, Daniel Boone was alive. He had just recently blazed the trail through the Cumberland Gap. This was a long time ago, more than 250 years ago. And when you think that this man, this preacher, opened his Bible to this passage, and this is what he read. Since we, have, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, and th that those should li who live should no longer live for themselves, but should live for him who died for them and was raised again. Can you imagine this, this preacher man who came in on his horse, reading? This was... 1797, here in Greencastle. You can just try to imagine these words and the impact in that frontier world in which he lived. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, but we do no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. We sang about that earlier and the power and the joy of that. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors through God, uh, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him to be sin who had no sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That message hasn't changed in the last 250 years. And I'm glad that that man came and preached it that day. So the question that Newcomer asked Otterbein in a little skit, Mr. Otterbein, or that Otterbein asked Newcomer, I'm sorry, Mr. Newcomer, do you think there could be a church at Otterbein? Do you think there could be a church at Greencastle? And newcomer said, yes, Mr. Otterbein, I think there could be a church. Because people respond to the gospel. When they understand it, they respond to it. And we are here today partly because of that uh, conversation. Partly because in six, 1790, 16, uh, 17, I'm sorry, I can't get these dates to run around my head wrong. 1797, that that this man came and he read and, and it took hold. And so um, a lot of things happened. I'm going to just mention a couple of things very quickly. And, and I'm, I, I know my time, where my time is, but I want to just mention this. 
as, as far as our church's history, this church where we set this group that we call Otterbein, um, it took about, it took about uh, I guess I'd say about 30 years or so till there was actually a church building. But during that time, they met in school, they met in homes in these early days. And finally, in 1829, there was a building built. And that building was on North Washington Street, where the current United Methodist Church is. Only it's not a United Methodist now. It's now called First Church. But that was our original location. And as you can see here, they came up with $900 for a wooden church building. How amazing. And then um, they built another church in 1884. But in 1889, there was a split. And there was a major issue, doctrinal issue. And that group split in half. And so... The one part had to start over. They were not allowed to use the building. So they went down to South Washington Street and started over, and they came up with a building in 1892, three years after that split, took them to collect 3000 and build a new building. And that's the building that is still there today, or it's a remodeled version of that. And then um, in 1963, uh, according to what I've read, that group, and some of you were part of that group, decided that you really needed in, to expand and you needed some new issue, some new things to work with. You bought this lot, 70 to 1, 70, 71. This church building here was built. Um, I, I was taking note of something when I was thinking about this. On the building committee of that church, I saw a picture of some of those, of those people who were on that committee back in 1970. And there are only two of those who are still with us today. And one of those is Richard Hess, and one of those is Bob Johnston back there that was part of the group of the building committee and the board when this church was built. I, I'd just like to give those two guys a hand. <laughs> Dick Hess. I called, Bob, I called Dick and said, uh, what did this building cost us? He said, I, have, I don't remember. I called Bob Johnson, and I said, Bob, what did this building cost? Would you have a ballpark figure? He said, I not only give you a ballpark figure, I can give you an exact figure. So uh, he did, and that figure that's it, it is what I have written down here, 130 some thousand dollars that this cost. And then, you know, if you've been around a while here, we have remodeled this building numerous times. When In, I think, about 87 or 88, we added a, a wing over here and put bathrooms upstairs and offices and preschool room and roof and air conditioner. That was a big deal. We didn't have no air, we didn't have any air conditioning. And I remember some folks who thought that was extravagant really coming back later and saying, whoo, it's nice. So, and then uh, 97 or 98, we built a gym and I do remember the cost of that was uh, 565000 I just had that figure in my head. That was a figure the board laid out and said this was the limit of what we can do. And then, of course, these last couple of years, it seems like we've been building another addition onto that and a kitchen onto that as well. And that is very nearing completion. And I talked to Ben Stoops this morning, and Ben said the door is open. After service, people can come in. If you want to go down and look at the gym, the floor's done. Um, you can't get in the kitchen yet, but it, you can see in the kitchen, and it's very close to being done. So we're, we're near that. We're near that day. So, oh, and I wanted to just add this as a way of a very humble thanks unto the Lord and to each of you. Um, I don't know what the cost of this addition is. I know it's over somewhere over one and a half million of this recent thing. It's just 
crazy the way prices have gone, and we didn't have to borrow a dollar. And it's, it's just amazing to me and wonderful to me that we are here at the end of it, and that's because of your wonderful giving. I want to say this. Um, I just want to go through our purpose statement as a church family that we sometimes years ago sat down and, and we have said, look, here is a word. We want to be a church that cares. And here is a word that we think that we can use these initials to say something greater. That it can, we can care in the sense that we can connect and we can affirm and we can reach and we can equip and we can send people into the world. I want to relate to you just a quick story. This past Sunday, a lady called me on Monday, and she said, David, I cannot explain to you this past Sunday, she's yesterday, she said, I came to church, and she said, I was pretty much mad at everything, I, I was pretty much angry at everybody about everything. She said, I was very much out of sorts, and I was discouraged, I had a lot of health problems going on, but there was other issues, relational issues, she said, I was pretty much mad at everybody about everything, and she said, I have no idea what happened during Sunday worship. But she said, when I left there on Sunday, I was a different person. Now, that wasn't me. That wasn't you. But she got connected to God. And something happened in her life. She called me on Monday to tell me about it. This is what we, this is who we are. This is our brand. This is our goal. This is our mission. And I know that I often feel very inadequate because I feel like I don't do a good job as a visionary to continually expand the boundaries and the opportunities. Um, I'm bogged down in, in people and in um, relationships of, of counseling and visiting and confronting and encouraging. I feel like my eyes are focused on people because this is God's calling on my life to just to, be, to shepherd, I guess would be a word. And the, the shepherd isn't necessarily expanding the ranch, and I don't feel like I do a good job of that at all. But that's my struggle. That's what I have to continually work on. Um, all of us, in the end, determine whether we are a church that cares. It's not just me. It's all of us. And I just hope and pray and challenge each of you to say, how can I be part and what can I do? Can you stand, please? Thank you for your patience. Lord, I think of this song we sang, which some people have said is the United Brethren hymn. Can it be that I should gain an entrance in Christ, my Lord? And the answer that comes back amazingly is yes. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. That it can be that I should gain an entrance, an interest in Christ my Lord. We uh, rejoice in that today. And we thank you for the heritage that we have, the hope that we have, the history that we have. We're not better than any other group. We're not worse than any other group. We're just who we are. This is kind of the, the place you've given us to hang our hat. We rejoice in it. And pray your blessing upon us, not only as a wider group, but Lord, this church, this group, each person here today, that we can be excited enough, that we can say to troubled friends and neighbors, look, um, I, I believe if you give the Lord a chance with your life, come with me. 
and let's learn together. And maybe something will happen to you like happened to this dear woman last Sunday that just left different than she came. And, and we can reach folks and bring them, not just to a service, but to Christ, is our prayer. We thank you for what you have done to bless us and pray that you will keep your hand upon us so that you can continue to bless us. We thank you for uh, who we are today in Jesus' name.